Greetings, Race Community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Barry Benson, who serves as Vice Chancellor for Institutional Advancement at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Welcome, Barry. Hi, Brent. Thanks for having me. Well, we were riffing before we actually hit go on the official recording, so I feel like we're all warmed up now, but I'm going to stick to my script and look forward to learning more about you. Uh, We had the opportunity to connect in person this summer a couple of times at both the Big Ten Development Conference and then the Case Summit for for a hot minute, so excited to uh, have some time to go a little bit deeper today. Uh, And so as I have been with most of our guests, Bear, I just want to know more about your own higher education journey so take me back to like junior year of high school. Who was that Barry? What was he into? What was, uh, you know, on your mixtape at the time and what led you to the University of Northern Colorado? Oh, well, well, that that's a loaded question here. And I don't know what this podcast is rated, but I'll try and keep it PG, especially during that time. But, uh, you know, uh, in high school, I was a, a head like everybody else. It, and I'm going to summarize this. So uh, bear with me here a little bit. But you know, the Barry back in that day envisioned a career on Wall Street and even before that playing baseball. So I actually went uh, to college to play baseball and happened to get a degree in finance along the way um, and envisioned Wall Street and slinging stocks and making a bunch of money and doing all that. And so I pursued that career for, oh, not quite 10 years, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, Barry, Barry, tell me, though, where were you growing up? Uh, yeah. So I'm a Colorado kid. Colorado. So so you're getting recruited all over the place or Northern Colorado was kind of. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And no. Uh, I had a a high school baseball coach who was very impactful at the time here that steered me in the direction of Northern Colorado, which at the time he was coaching at. Um, He failed to tell me that he had just accepted a job at the University of Nebraska. And so he went off to Lincoln just as soon as I came on campus. And so I think I scared him away. But ultimately, that worked out for him. He ultimately was the head coach at Lincoln for a few years and uh, coincidentally went back to northern Colorado. But he really steered me towards staying closer to home in Greeley. What position did you play? You know what? I was an infielder. And then on occasion I could pitch, but uh, could never hit a curveball. So the baseball career wasn't going too far. So tell me like all time favorite baseball memory in all your years of playing. Oh, you know, that's a good one. I hit two home runs off a gentleman by the name of Roy Halliday. So Roy pitched in the big leagues for a couple of years, ultimately ended up winning at least one or two Cy Youngs. But that was kind of my claim to fame. And then unfortunately, he died tragically after his playing days were over in a an experimental plane accident, if if memory's correct, in Florida. But uh, he was a Colorado kid too, and uh, you know my little flash in the pan was hitting a couple couple home runs off of him in one one game in particular. So, so when you would see him playing in the big leagues, no matter where you were, who you were with, that was it. Yep, yep. And there were a few other high points along the way here, but uh, needless to say, the baseball career wasn't going too much further than college, which I'm okay with. So And so you're in Colorado and you've got dreams of slinging stocks. You get the opportunity to join UBS, yep. uh, which is one of the leading global uh, financial firms, certainly a Wall Street firm. Uh, what was your where was your first day of work at UBS and what was the context for that entry level financial advisor type role? Yeah, so actually it was uh, before the UBS piece and they ultimately 
I went to a firm in downtown Denver at the time that I was hiring green folks like myself that were young and ambitious and didn't know any better. And so, you know, it actually prepared me well for the fundraising role because at that time there was no caller ID, there was no nothing. And if you've seen Boiler Room without the, all of the illegal activities. I am. I was just Googling Boiler Room to see what year it was published because I feel like this is lining up pretty well. It was spot on, except without all the illegal activities. You were jumping on the phone and you were talking to complete strangers. And I remember having a, a call sheet that I, I tallied the dials, the contacts, the follow ups and the whole nine yards. And so that was, you know, that was my uh, that was my break into hearing no about 900 times a day here, which I think prepared me well for uh, life afterwards. But uh, but it was a fascinating time because it is like dot com boom you're walking and so you must have had some just incredible yeses as well or just tell me about some of the memories of like truly slinging stocks during such a wild run-up type period well what i remember is the internet was still you know kind of in its infancy right and so there were yahoo there were you know netscape there were all of these companies and stocks and at the time you know, everybody was a little reluctant to jump headfirst in. Little did we know that, you know, it totally revolutionized life as we know it. But back then it was still, oh, are you sure? How do they make money? How do they do this? And so the business model was yet unproven. But, you know, at that time we were still looking at dividends and a few other things that, you know, are still important in today's society. But now they've become a little bit, um, you know, the back burner issues here to to some of the growth that we've seen in the financial markets today. And and thank goodness, because all of our fundraising shops across the planet have generated or benefited generously from a lot of that growth. So, but it was a wild time. I mean, it was a, what, Dow 10,000. I think the Dow was less than 10,000 at the time. And there were, you know, all kinds of interesting stories. That was even before the year 2000. And we were talking about the year 2000 and the clocks and all of these issues. And, you know, everybody had, uh, Every had, everybody had quite the scenario about the future of, of life as we know it back then. Well, as anybody who's seen Boiler Room could imagine, it is a tough job. I mean, yeah. you are trying, it's extremely competitive. You're working with other very motivated people that are trying to, you know, be number one, I would imagine. And so did you like that? Was it uh, a mixed bag? I mean, what was, I mean, because you spent a bunch of years doing it. Yeah, I did. You know what? I absolutely loved it. But I started to have a family and the commission only business, um, you know, really started to weigh on me a little bit. And so, you know, I, I kind of iterated the career a little bit from slinging stocks to UBS. And then ultimately it was bank at one at the time. And it was now Chase Bank uh, yeah. or into the financial planning space in a state, a state planning, which ultimately led me to go to law school. And then uh, I was pursuing law school and then I decided not to go to law school. So, you know, everybody that gets into this fundraising business at some point in their career made a left turn. And that's where mine was. Right. But in the meantime, I was going to go to law school. We had sold our house, the whole nine yards, and then decided kind of had a, a midlife crisis when I was what 25 or whatever age it was here and decided that really wasn't the direction for me. What was the moment? Was there like one moment when all of a sudden you just said, I'm not doing it? Yeah, no, we, uh, I remember it vividly. Um, I was going to go to law school and we were going to go out of state and I couldn't find a place to live. And I had 
two, I've got three daughters now. Two of them were just babies at the time. And we were temporarily living with my mother-in-law um, in Northern Colorado in Greeley. And the class was going to start the next week. I didn't have a place to live. We had no idea how we were going to pay the bills. And so it was a good plan on paper. But once we started to execute, things quickly fell apart and essentially said, uh, you know, excuse my language, but screw it. Let's let's figure something else out. Um, and then ironically, I sent an email to Jim Moore, who I've had the privilege of working with for the last 20 years. And uh, I remember I was at the dinner table. Uh, and I had gotten his name from a previous colleague and a board member that was on the foundation board at Northern Colorado and sent him an email, said, hey, I've, I've got this experience and frankly, I need a job. Uh, he called me back on a Thursday evening at the dinner table and I was employed the following Monday. Uh, and, it, and his role was what exactly at that yeah, time? Yeah, he was the foundation president at that time at the University of Northern Colorado. He had just come from uh, the... Uh, Eller College at the University of Arizona. And so he was trying to build the team and I I was unemployed and had a little bit of street cred, I guess. And, you know, he was desperate and so was I. And so it's been a, it's well, a- Now it's all making sense. This is why we do the podcast. I had no idea that you guys went back that far. Shame on me for not connecting these dots. So- Well, so depending you- on the day, he tries to keep that a secret. So maybe I, uh, I spilled the beans, but- uh, you know, but depending on the day, we either congratulate or curse each other, but such is life, right? So just talk to me about that. We've had a handful of folks that have both um, started out in the financial planning world, uh, maybe both, you know, maybe not as transactional as the way that you were describing, but certainly from a wealth management perspective, uh, you painted such a vivid picture of the boiler room vibe, uh, minus the illegal activity, which we'll continue to cite throughout the podcast. Uh, <laughs> So then you sit down under maybe Jim's leadership or somebody on his team to become a development officer. Walk me through the first 30 days, 90 days, you know, probably not a boiler room, probably a very different vibe. Did it connect with you right away? I mean, early donor visits had to feel a lot different than trying to sling uh, pharmaceutical stock with no (laughs) somebody. So just tell me about the transition. Yeah, no, I I do think there are a lot of parallels. Um, You know, ultimately, this is a relationship business and a contact sport. And so you've got to build rapport and trust with your clients here, um, whether they be in a large wirehouse like UBS or at an institution. And really, that's where the synergy is, right? And telling a story, right? And illustrating impact. Now, we're not looking for returns necessarily, at least not in the same way we were at a wirehouse, but illustrating, you know, the impact of philanthropy and really identifying passion and what what we can utilize in order to get not only the institution there, but the donors there. And so there's a lot of synergy between the financial business and really what we do today. Um, You know, when I look at hiring folks, that's one of the backgrounds that I look to. Coaching is another one and teaching. We find a lot of parallels between, you know, really mentoring you know, either staff or donors and really being able to shape a narrative that folks can embrace and find compelling. So there is, there, you know, it, it that, that experience served me well uh, and I don't regret it. And there's some times that I miss it. Um, and there are times that I try and pull some of those tenants in the old days uh, into the work that we do today. So I, I enjoyed it. What I love about those roles is the clarity of focus. Yeah. 
it was it, the scoreboard was very clear and the activities that led to the outcomes you wanted to achieve were very clear and i yep. think sometimes in the midst of all of the things that make up the higher ed enterprise there are there are just a lot of distractions like there're just a lot of distractions that I, I bet you didn't have a lot of distractions when you were looking at the call sheet. Um, and, and I bet, you know, if you did, uh, you would hear about it in some form or fashion. Yeah. Uh, Brent, I apologize. I don't know if you could hear that story. That's a ring. I or heard that sound. That was a ring I hadn't heard before, but um, yeah, no, it's, you know, when you're, when you're on commission, Right. You got to be laser focused or you don't pay the bills. Right. Um, and so keeping, you know, bringing some of that mentality over to this business and being metric driven and some of the measurables that really uh, quantify success here um, is really something that we look to, especially in our shop. And I think others are embracing here as it relates to an ROI and some of the other things that we use to define success. Yeah, I don't think that we're going to be rolling out the commission model anytime soon. But man, there are, days, there are days, Barry, that I wonder just what if you did? What if you? What if none of the ethics were a concern, and you could just say, you know what, we're going to have a radically uh, innovative new model. It's the first commission-based fundraising program. What would happen? Um, you know, maybe it's not even worth spitballing on it. But I do wonder sometimes. Yeah, you know, the commission and. and you know, you get a few of us around the table here and we've all got different opinions here. I'm in favor of some incentive comp or some bonus structure, not a commission where you get a percentage of each gift that comes through the door. But if you have and, you know, I I kind of unpack, uh, I've got a little recency bias here because we're trying to differentiate goals versus objectives in our office here. But if you do meet certain thresholds, right, you know, perhaps there is some incentivization, whether it's monetarily or otherwise, to doing a, a great job, right? Yep. The one thing about this business is, is you're in it because you embrace the mission, you love helping people, but if you want to get uber wealthy, there are probably other ways to do that here. So, um, you know, I do think that there's some room uh, to chat about some of these uh, incentivizations here and other other shops have done that, Um and it's something that we continue to look at. We don't do that at Illinois, but I certainly don't fault those that, you know, kind of pursue that path. Tell me about the experience at Northern Colorado as a development officer. Any visits that stand out for you or just memories along the way where you start to think, hey, this isn't just a, you know, a, a quick kind of career pivot here. I actually love this work. I could do this. Any any highlights? Oh, man. Now you're... Uh... You're testing the memory bank. Or, or it could be Arizona or it could be conversations with Jim. I mean, obviously you connected with Jim and saw an opportunity to yeah. sort of follow, uh, you know, to follow him. And and so, but, it, but at some point it goes from, hey, this is a job to this could actually be a career path. And, and did that happen at Northern Colorado or, or elsewhere? No, it did. It, it definitely happened back, back home, so to speak, in Northern Colorado. And I'll give one example. My first job was a, a one-person shop in the College of Business. Uh, the name was the Montfort College of Business. At that time, it was undergraduate only. But the namesake of the college, uh, the patriarch of the family had since passed away, but the surviving sons happened to own the Colorado Rockies. And so they lived in the community. And so on occasion, I would jump on a 
on a plane or a visit, especially if it was in an area that we had prominent alumni or successful folks that we could engage and enticing our alumni or donors with the owner's tickets, right? And sitting next to the owner was pretty appealing. So on one occasion, uh, took a trip out to San Francisco and I'll leave names out of it. But um, at the time, this gentleman happened to be the money manager for the Grateful Dead, um, um, it, MC Hammer, although that's a, another story, uh, Santana in the music business, knew absolutely everybody. And so I had him come visit a game. I'm sitting next to the owners. Um, the second row, right, right across, was it first base or third base? At any rate, right behind a dugout, perfect seats. Uh, he happens to get a phone call. And I am so close to him. He's sitting actually behind me, but I can hear the, the conversation. And he picks up the phone and says, hey, you know, so-and-so, they're talking business. Do you know who I am? Yes, I see you on television every Thursday night. I know exactly who you are. It happened to be at that time, you remember American Idol? It was in the first or second season. Um, and I th his name was Randy. I forget his last name. Uh, there was Simon. There was Paula. Yeah. Um, Randy yeah. happens. Randy happened to be his name. And I forget his last name. You remember his last name? Yeah, I'm going to figure it out. I, I want to say Jackson. Yeah. Randy. I, I, yeah. OK, I think you're right. I want to say Johnson. You're on. You're on. OK, so you're <laughs> okay. So so I'm at a ball game and he's talking to Randy Jackson and it was about a band that they wanted to promote together. But I thought, you know what? Uh, I may not be making a bunch of money here, but I'm I'm sitting at a ball game in the owner suite and you know, having a conversation with guys that are getting calls from Randy Jackson in the top of the third inning about, you know, some random music thing. So, you know, those experiences don't happen every day. And this is a this is a line of work where you uh, you get to visit, you know, some of those uh, some of those experiences here, even if just for a baseball game. But I have been absolutely fortunate to experience a few of those along the way. And that was the first one where I said, you know what, this gig's pretty cool. I think I'll stick this out. I love it. Well, the move to Arizona is a big one, though. So tell me about that. Yeah. Um, where do I want to start with that one? We uh, we absolutely loved Colorado. I met my wife in sixth grade. Um, and so that was home for us. And candidly, uh, you know, the furthest we had moved at that point was down to Denver, uh, which is about an hour away. And so, you know, packing up the car and moving three kids and a wonderful wife to Arizona um, was a leap of faith. Um, but I tell you what, we absolutely enjoyed it. The institution was phenomenal. As you well know, T Tucson's a little slice of heaven. Um, and I miss it every day. I've absolutely enjoyed my experience here in Illinois, but, um, Arizona is, uh, especially here in the next couple of months when, you know, we're shoveling snow here and it's 80 degrees out in the desert here has a certain appeal, but, uh, not only was it for uh, professional reasons, but personally, we were ready for a change and um, kind of fit the profile for what we were looking for. Well, what we hear about all the time right now in this sector is turnover, ability to retain talent, such a challenge. Uh, you were there for eight years. That's a really <laughs> long run. And so what kept you there? What were some of the highlights? And when you think about, uh, you know, trying to retain folks in that same way yourself, I mean, what what worked there? You know, I, I suppose it helped that I had some success uh, and there was a career path that, you know, I could see. Right. I think some of the times that we struggle with retention efforts is that, 
you know, in, in some instances, folks are, are, are obligated or mandated to, to jump ship, right? You can chase a title or chase a position in a, in a lot of ways, or in some ways it may make some sense and others probably not so much. I was fortunate at Arizona. It was a large enough shop. Uh, I had a mentor in Jim that kind of, you know, mentored me along the way here and showed me the ropes here and allowed me to be successful and candidly allowed me to, you know, be creative in some of the things that I implemented at Arizona. And so I had a lot of autonomy to do some good work. I enjoyed it along the way. And so, you know, I think you you find folks that that do make a jump. Generally, it's it's there's not an articulated career path or they're somehow being uh, disenfranchised in terms of uh, what might need next for them personally and both professionally. So what's an example of the autonomy that you felt and how that led you to make change or or do things that hadn't been done before? Well, you know, I, I, there's if you give me a couple minutes here, I can think of a few. Um you know, we actually tried to implement something I, I couldn't get done at Arizona, but Jim was receptive to the direction uh, really about building culture, right? And gamifying interactions between staff and incentivizing behaviors that we valued as an organization. You know, to Jim's credit, he said, go for it. Um, you know, there were a number of reasons why we couldn't pull that off. Uh, fortunately, we were able to do that in Illinois. But that's one example of, you know, just some creativity here that I think, you uh, you know, folks can appreciate above and beyond allowing folks to go off on wacky tangents and, you know, pursue leads that, you know, some folks may not may yeah. not envision coming to fruition. What was the absolute highlight uh, favorite memory during the time at Arizona, you know, personally or professionally? Oh, wow. Um, you know, we completed a, a campaign at the time here two years ahead of schedule. Um, I'd love to say that that was easy, but, uh, you know, as most of these campaigns go, there were some bumps in a row and some bumps in the road and some obstacles to overcome. Um, so really proud of the, the folks that kind of, you know, uh, pulled on the same rope all, all in the same direction. And so, you know, campaign success is, is always one where you raise, regardless of the amount, as soon as you get those things across the finish line, you can put a feather in your cap and be proud of. My sources indicate that Jim Moore joined the University of Illinois in 2015. Yeah, you're, you're on Google there. Uh, and, uh, and it looks like about two years later, <laughs> you got a call or you made a call? No, I got a call. Uh, he was looking for a vice chancellor. Um, and we're a bit decentralized. The foundation does its thing. Kind of each of the campuses or the universities in the system do their thing, but we're all on the same team. And so I think you find in this business, uh, as you well know, if you find somebody you can trust, right, that goes a long way. And so Jim and I have a rapport. He had a need here in Urbana-Champaign. And so depending on the day, I either thank him or curse him for, for bringing me to Illinois. But um, it's been a wonderful ride. You're looking at the data here. I'll you know, I think it's been seven years, although, you know, I always round up. So let's just call it 20, like a good fundraiser. But um, yeah, he's the reason I'm in Illinois and uh, uh, we're a good team. So what have you learned from Jim for folks that know Jim? He's obviously been very public and a, and a great leader in the space, but most people haven't worked with him. So if you work with him, uh, what have you learned? What stands out? Yeah, well, I alluded to before, trust is a big deal, right? If you don't have trust, you you don't have much else after that. And so uh, trust, transparency, candor, 
I think is important. Jim is an absolute savant uh, on the foundation side, managing boards and volunteers, campaign planning, a lot of the blocking and tackling. Jim, you won't find anybody better in the business. And so I've 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 learned an awful lot of the business side um you know relative to the foundation work and what goes on in the back office from Jim and then candidly he builds relationships like no other um so he's he's very much a five tool player if we want to continue the athletic metaphors um and he's been not only a, a wonderful colleague but a great friend along the way talking mentors tell me about the chia pet <laughs> uh yeah I, I won't go into a whole bunch of details though but it, you know, I, I've been fortunate to where, depending on where I was in my life stage, to find folks that really embraced and mentored and uh, on occasion counseled me, uh, depending on life circumstances. Uh, Joe is a gentleman I met a few years ago here at Illinois, and his life story and the obstacles that he overcame, uh, I found truly inspiring. And so you alluded to, we know Joe from the Chia Pet and the Clapper. Uh, but he was homeless at 16, went to Illinois, uh, has supported a number of organizations, not only in San Francisco, where he called home, uh, but in Chicago as well. And he's the most altruistic donor I've ever met in my life. And he's got multiple stories to suggest where he he always put others forward. Um, and so he lived a life that Frankly, I think all of us would be envious of. Uh, we had an opportunity to get him back to campus, never graduated because he was off doing um, working uh, to pay the bills. But at 89, I think was the age we got him back. He participated in commencement, got a standing ovation in our football field and really was an inspiration uh, relative to how we treat people and what we value as a as a human here. He was a wonderful example um, you know, during the seven years, I was fortunate enough to know him. I Just love him. Yeah. Love it. Great story. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, it's, it's reflective of, I mean, it's one of the great parts about this sector is you get, you get to hear those individual stories all the time, right? I mean, a lot of times we're talking about billions and millions and hundreds of thousands of people or whatever, but it really comes down to like those collective individual stories, like your story of having a coach that inspired you to play baseball that has led to all of these things, or Joe's, you know, story of um, sort of perseverance, and then you all being able to stay connected. Uh, it's, um, but it's, it's unfortunate that there are so there, there's such a negative perception around higher education or public higher education in some cases right now that feels so counter to the actual stories that fundraisers here every single day. And I, I, I'm really struggling with how, how that narrative shift has, has just gotten so out of whack. Now, if every day we heard terrible experiences about higher ed and how little it helped people in their careers, then okay, maybe, maybe I could accept more of it, but we hear so much positivity, uh, but we don't see that reflected in the headlines. Do you feel that way? You know what I do? And, it, and I've got two daughters now that go to Illinois. I've got a third daughter that will go to uh, college somewhere. She hasn't quite decided yet. And so there's, there's a narrative that I share with them that um, I think is consistent with some of the dialogue uh, that we hear out there and wherever. Um, you know, higher education is more than just what happens in the classroom, right? And I think that that's where the value proposition gets diluted a little bit, right? Not always 
you know, my daughter's going to graduate with a communications degree, for example. I don't know what she'll do with that. Um, but regardless, she's going to benefit from the experiences she had at Illinois. Right. So, um, you know, we try and we try and, uh, I guess, uh, you know, impact that narrative uh, a little bit relative to our conversations. And it's it's more about the entire experience. Right. Uh, more so than just some classroom. Now, you know, they can get that online. They can get some of these other things. There are options that simply weren't there decades ago. Right. Um, and so that's you know, that's kind of the conversation we have about the holistic experience here, here at Illinois or anywhere else. And I think we've we've somehow lost that uh, in the narrative that we read in the newspapers or other otherwhere. But that's a story you got to tell on a daily basis. So tell me about the University of Illinois, the experience at Urbana-Champaign, what the message is that you all are taking to donors right now, what the receptiveness is. Um, yeah, just how are you feeling uh, as you round the corner on, I think, seven years? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think most institutions can attest we have been on a on a winning streak, so to speak. Right. We've got a great product to sell. Um, you know, without Illinois, we wouldn't have air conditioning. We wouldn't have the MRI. We wouldn't have the LED. We wouldn't have Tesla. We wouldn't have PayPal. We wouldn't have YouTube. My favorite. We wouldn't have cheese in the can. Right. Um, so we've got a tremendous product to sell. We've got wonderful people here in order to do it. And so, you know, it's a ma it's a matter of us about engaging folks. Right. And telling our story and what tools we utilize in order to do that, because um, the product sells itself. Right. By and large, we've got a, a, a tremendous following here. We've got scale. Right. Which a lot of institutions don't have. We have over 500,000 living alumni. Um, so there is no shortage of supply. Um, so engaging those folks, telling our story, illustrating impact and providing opportunities for them to give back is really where we're at now. We just finished a multi-billion dollar campaign. And so pipeline development, where we're going to find our next generation of donors are, are kind of front and center for me as we continue to move forward here at Illinois. And the name is Illinois. There are a lot of your alumni in Illinois, but you also have a very distributed alumni base, over 30,000 alums in California, uh, for example, uh, 10,000 plus in in New York. Uh, so how do you sort of operate with such a strong state connection and being a pillar of the state, but also do that kind of pipeline development nationally or even globally? Yeah, there's there's the trick. So you're up, you're absolutely spot on. Seventy five percent of our current students are Illinois residents. If you look at our alumni map or a heat map, the vast majority of those stay in state, primarily Chicago. Right. Otherwise, you've got the coast. So you've got uh, typically Silicon Valley and then New York. We are out in those areas all the time. We have folks that are placed out in those areas. And so we do have a presence. The challenge that we have um, is that approximately 20% of our current students and a large percentage of our alumni are actually international, right? And so how do we engage those folks? We have a strong and robust international team, but now by virtue of COVID, and we chatted a little bit about the, the pitfalls and certainly the challenges of COVID, uh, but the technology, right? Digitally reaching out to our folks, whether they be in another state or across the globe, uh, has really been one of the silver linings that we've seen here and engaging those folks in the digital content that's more interactive, right? And, you know, we, we can send videos now, thank you to thank you, 
right? And they're just not postcards or letters. So, you know, it becomes a challenge. Um, but thankfully, you know, we've got a robust team uh, and a global presence here, and we continue to kind of amplify the channels that we use to, to share those messages. Any memories over the last couple of years? I mean, what you're highlighting is something I've repeated on the podcast, which is like, look, we're now all a Zoom link away. And Zoom's not perfect, but it's a heck of a lot better than what we would have thought of a decade ago, right? So being a Zoom link away from every one of your constituents, wherever they are in the world, as long as there's internet, that's a big change. Um, And we've seen some really creative use cases where we've been able to break down barriers and connect people in almost like that, you know, parlor dinner type thing we might have done in Silicon Valley in the past, except now virtually. Have you had any experiences like that that stand out on a global scale or or maybe I guess for the future? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, uh, thankfully, one of the reasons I'm proud to, to be at Illinois is we really pioneered some of the COVID testing, right? And what that looked like in manufacturing, re- reverse engineering, rapid vent, and some of the ventilator stuff. That all occurred internationally, and that happened via Zoom and connections with the institution. And so that connective tissue, as you alluded to, a, a Zoom call away, you know, just accelerates that process that otherwise wouldn't have been I mean, it would have been impossible, right, five years ago. So we've got that um, connecting with folks uh, and sharing real time, you know, and in person, some of the things that we're doing um, only accelerate some of that processes. So, yeah, it's just, I mean, there's there's too many instances for me to list here, but uh, it happens all day long, uh, every day, and we're, all of us are better off for it. Are you building the team now? Are you hiring? What's the state of affairs as you think about fiscal 24 and beyond? Yeah, like everybody else, I think everybody's hiring. We've we've done a great job with our retention efforts. Um, you know, over the last couple of years here, we really embrace culture um, and promote a positive, healthy work environment here. But we need more folks, right? The the great thing about completing a campaign is that we can raise our hand and say woohoo. Um, but managing expectations and you know uh, what we do next is always a challenge. Um, and not only trying to to work harder, but smarter uh, about what we do is always an interesting conundrum, right? Um, inevitably, it entails hiring more folks, not only on the front line, but the back office, the stewardship. You know, how do we engage folks at scale now by virtue of Zoom and some of the other tools that we have outsourcing some of those things? Um, you know, there are some instances where we don't necessarily need to bring folks in-house. That's expensive. You know, uh, Evertrue, ThankView, um, you know, some other vendors out there kind of hit a sweet spot for us where we don't have to kind of do this ourselves here. And I think we've been we've been more accustomed to that lately uh, than certainly in years past. And so that's how we anticipate instead of raising three billion dollars, you know, our next goal may be five or six, I think. But uh, we're going to need bright and talented people in order to get there and lean on a few friends along the way to do that as well. I love it. Really um, exciting. And and yeah, I mean, just, I don't know. Uh, we had the opportunity to connect a little bit at the Big Ten Development Conference. There's been other, I feel like there's just such strong connectivity in the Big Ten. I know that everybody talks about how collaborative this industry is, but I just feel like the Big Ten is kind of next level in that regard. Do you feel that way relative to other places you've been? And, and give our listeners a window into just how you all collaborate um, in that Big Ten fishbowl. Yeah, I I will tell you the Big Ten is like no other. Um, 
you know, and I, I, I know enough to be dangerous about some of the other conferences, right? Um, I've had intimate experience in the Pac-12. You alluded to the Big Ten Conference. We didn't have that in the Pac-12. I know the Big 12 or, you know, there isn't even a Pac-12 anymore, but we'll we'll go down that path on another podcast. But I'll give you an example, Brent. We're hosting the next Big Ten Conference next year. And so on Friday at four o'clock, my time, it would have been five o'clock for the Rutgers folks. It would have been, what, two or three o'clock for UCLA and USC we had about 12, 12 folks, right, on the Zoom call here, and all of them chipped in about best experiences, whether it was last year in the conference you attended or some of the other stuff that we're doing across the country. Uh, the Big Ten has really taken the lead, and everybody jumps in to kind of create a pleasurable experience for, for everyone. There's BitFry, which is the Big Ten Fundraising Institute that, you know, we've expanded outside the Big Ten now. So there's, you know, there's really a, a very collegial um interdisciplinary collaborative environment that uh, I'm not sure exists anywhere else. Did you participate in the big 10 fundraising Institute this year and past years? Uh, I have mine was four or five years ago, but yes, we send a couple folks out that way every year. Uh, Rhea is great. Lynette Marshall, uh, Jim's on faculty there. Um, who else is on there? I, I think David Lively's on there now. I'm trying to remember all of the participants. Yeah, I just did a call with, uh, with Scott Roberts at Oklahoma State University, oh, yeah. and he had a, I guess, a golden ticket to the uh, institute this year, and was just raving about how how good of an experience it was. Yeah, they 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 do a nice job, and I think, you know, now that we're friends and we've chatted for forty two minutes here, I I think finding that sweet spot be, between you know intimate experiences like Bitfry versus Case or even the Big Ten for that matter, and what that looks like. Um, is really a, a challenge. There's no shortage of professional development opportunities, which is a great thing about our sector and our industry. But, you know, really, what are some of those take-home experiences that people can put in their pockets and and don't forget about the next week or so? And, and Bitfry absolutely allows for that. Well, maybe tell me a little bit more about uh, that as we conclude here. Just who's on your speed dial? I mean, who are some of the other folks that you've really gotten to know and, and respect and collaborate with if you're dealing with an issue or a challenge. Um, you don't need to give us the specifics per se, but just who are some of the people you really have come to collaborate with? Yeah, you, you know, I, I'll follow up the Big Ten thread. I mean, I can jump on the phone and, and chat with any of those folks here as we move forward. Brian Hastings and I, not to you know throw out names because I'll inevitably forget somebody. Uh, he's been a great colleague, and I know you guys have done some great work together. So um, he's wonderful. I've you know, I'm lucky I got Jim on speed dial um, coming into the office today. Had a, uh, a great conversation with Tom Wamsley. Uh, Tom is my comms colleague up at, at UIC who spent a lot of time at Michigan and the Raw School. Um, so the great part about this business is after 20 years, uh, you know, there's no shortage of folks in the Rolodex. And at one point, you know, I was always the youngest in the room. And now now I can't always say that. So uh, in addition to the great beard that we were talking about earlier, I guess one of the benefits is, uh, you know, having a having a larger speed dial here to, you know, tap on shoulders as necessary. Well, I love it, Barry. And I, I hope that folks that are listening uh, feel like they've got a better understanding of, of your journey, what's going on at the University of Illinois. That's partly why we're doing the podcast. I want I want I want to interview everybody. I want to hear every story uh, among all those people. And, and we're doing all right, chipping away. 
but we're going to keep on uh, keep on talking to folks because I think you know all too often, even as we've met over the years, the conversation starts with you know the present and and, and focuses on the future. And obviously, one of the fun parts of development work is is understanding people's history and their story and their past. And um, I don't think we were doing a very good job of that part of our work in the sector. And it's been a lot of fun. And I, I have no doubt somebody's going to come in and reference the, you know, the baseball story or Randy Jackson or something in, uh, in a future interview. And, and I hope that that helps, uh, you know, add additional perspective for people. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it and I'm grateful for the opportunity and I'm sure we'll uh, catch up soon at, at some point down the road here. I look forward to it, Barry. So uh, thank you again for making time and, and with that, I'm going to wrap uh, today's episode, folks, here with uh, Barry Benson from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Thanks, Barry. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Barry. Take care. Yep.